Man, what is happening? This is a long time coming. I've been wanting to do a podcast for quite a while since I launched my website. This is the Mark Groves Podcast. Welcome to episode one, where the guest is myself. For those of you that don't know me, I write, speak, think, nerd out, enjoy exploring the concept of relationships, but not just romantic. That's where my inspiration or desire was born, but more in the sense of relationship to everything. You know, I think in our lives, we experience rock bottoms in different aspects of our life. That can be, you know, becoming obese, getting diabetes, having a breakup, which is really, I feel as though the most common way to really hit a bottom addiction, drugs, alcohol, all those things. And all of these rock bottoms really allow us to find ourselves to, you know, to meet ourselves. And, you know, you hear the the sort of cheesy saying of you fall apart, you can put yourself back together how you like. And although it's cheesy, it's true. And I mean, let's be honest, most cheesy things are pretty fucking true. So I wanted to create this podcast because I've been having such amazing conversations exploring you know, how love works, how relationships work, how, you know, why do we overeat? You know, all the things about our health and why do we have these experiences with our bodies and where does illness come from? You know, all the, you know, not just from the sense of like why you get cancer or why we get hypertension or cholesterol or what, you know, high cholesterol or anything like that. And, you know, we're, I, I certainly come from the background. I was in pharmaceutical sales for 14 years. And I come from the background of very Western medicine thought of, you know, this is all created, you know, it's just part of our biology and an illness and we have to take drugs to treat it. And my mind is, and just my beliefs have really shifted over time as I've learned more about how the body processes emotion and trauma. And there's not an education system structured on this. You know, I've sought to learn all these things personally for my own, you know, well-being and my desire to want to be the best possible partner in relationship, but also to look at like, why do I believe what I believe? Why do, you know, I was raised Catholic till I didn't want to be anymore. I often joke that I'm a recovering Catholic. I'm, I'm sure there's lots of people who can relate to that. And probably a lot of people that won't like that conversation, which is why I want to have it, because I think it's really important that we tell the truth about things. You know, that we actually have the conversation about what's actually happening. And for me, you know, when I was 27, I had a relationship that ended. I was engaged. And when that relationship ended, I really wanted to understand why relationships are the way they are. Why do relationships end? What's the science behind what makes them work and what makes them not work? And really looking at why did I so desperately want to get married by 27? You know, why, why is there something so much about the age of 27 and 30? Like if you don't have kids by 30, you're sort of fucked. And as I looked at my own life and how I was showing up, you know, I was an exceptionally good salesperson. I don't say that to brag. I, I'm just saying like, I really was good at sales. And that was interesting to me because I was great at communicating on a sales level. I could sell anything. But when it came to actually talking about my feelings, I often dodged those conversations. Well, the skill set is the same. You know, the ability to share your feelings about how you feel about a, an ice cream cone, it's easy. We'd be like, oh man, it tastes so good. It's, you know, we have emotions about, I mean, maybe I'm the only one who has emotions about ice cream, but we're able to express that with no problem. But there's something about expressing how we feel that something gets in the way. And I saw that there was something getting in the way for me. And I wanted to understand that the last 
10 years since I've been engaged, I've just been on a journey of self-exploration and, you know, my engagement ending, I used to think was where it started, but that definitely isn't true. It started, you know, as a child, just wanting the construction of my beliefs, uh, why I think what I think, what's it like to be a boy or a girl, and, you know, for me, a boy in a family and to have a parent who's from a different country and to have another parent who's been divorced before, you know, all of these things influence us and we don't tend to think about that. One of the most powerful things I learned is that our wounds occur in relationship and that's where they get healed. I'm a firm believer that relationships are an invitation to ourselves. When we're having conflicts with our partner, those are opportunities of formerly unhealed experiences that are coming up because, you know, like just fighting over the laundry or something like that is, is just the laundry. It's the content. That's usually what we focus on, but we don't focus on like, what's the emotional need in that moment? Why am I being the way I'm being? Why do I get defensive so easily? Why am I so reactive? Why do I get angry? Why am I abusive? Why do I allow people to abuse me? All of these things are such important questions that we avoid often. I don't want that, you know, like I'm on this planet to be the best version of myself. And I want people to understand why they do what they do. And I want them to have the resources to do that. You know, that's really the birth of this podcast is to actually bring to you the conversations that I've been having. And I'm going to have on people who I love dearly, people who I don't know. You know, that'll be like one of those awkward moments where you're asking someone to be on your show and it's kind of like asking for a first date. So, you know, I'll definitely want to hear from you guys who you'd like to hear from. But I really want to talk about subjects that aren't just in the realm of romantic relationships, although I think that's a great place to focus on. But they will go to peripheral other spaces because, you know, that saying that, you know, everybody was saying for a long time and might still be how we do one thing is how we do everything. I very much believe that, you know, if you have bad boundaries in your romantic life, those usually will have been started with friends and family, especially family. And so we can actually be great in multiple areas of our life and we can have our shit figured out. And then there's something about romance and when we share our hearts, the potential for rejection and abandonment that causes the things we haven't healed to come out. So superficially, our life can appear so great. But then what we see is that it isn't because the moment we're about to be rejected or abandoned, that's when our shit comes up. You know, you know, I, I think about it's so easy to learn meditation when you're in a forest or you're on the top of a mountain. And to learn mindfulness in that setting. But who are you when you're being told that someone wants to leave? Who are you when someone says, I don't love you anymore? Who are you when you're potentially rejected by your partner or upset by someone at work or any of those? And how do we get to the space where we're not like that anymore? You know, you think about Eckhart Tolle and how he's so like your pain body is being activated and you have, you know, how do you get anything out of this moment is you know, all that stuff that uh, until you get it doesn't make a lot of sense. But, you know, how do you get as Eckhart Tolle-esque, but with a more uh, dynamic speaking voice, I suppose. Those are really things I want to understand. And I don't think of myself as an expert in anything, but more so someone who is on the journey with everybody else. I'm in the trenches. You know, my relationship is wonderful and amazing, and it's always far from perfect. You know, and that's the part, you know, I think on social media and in those settings, it's so easy to portray life as being perfect and to be at the perfect vacation spots and all those things. 
but another thing to see within someone's life, you know, and to see that we all struggle and the common human experience is to feel unworthy. You know, the common human experience is to not be sure about ourselves, to have that imposter syndrome of why would anyone listen to me and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that was certainly true for me when I was leaving pharma and I was starting to write in my, you know, as I researched why relationships work and why they don't, I also discovered a spiritual side of myself that I had put to sleep since I'd sort of resented the Catholic Church in a way. And I, I did, hadn't explored the side of spirituality or why am I on this planet? I read the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And that book really opened me up to the idea of like, what's my purpose on this planet? And I had and still had so much passion about learning about how we relate to other people and what makes it so that we can relate on a much higher level, on a deeper level. How do we get the love we want? How do we create connections that are fulfilling and beautiful and deep? How do we get the thing we've been sold? You know, we've all been sold this concept of a Disney-like experience and a love story should always be elating and you should always be so in love. You should always have butterflies and you should always be having amazing, mind-blowing sex. And of course, right? Like we all want that. And the reality of life is that you can continue to have mind-blowing sex, but we, you know, we're often, the desire is to have it with one person. You know, that's the idea of like, why do we search for monogamy and lifelong marriages? And is that the right way to do things? I mean, I don't really believe there is a right way to do anything. Um, we have to be open to the possibility of other things. And, you know, I used to really project my beliefs onto other people, wanting them to believe what I believe. And I, you know, probably still catch myself doing it sometimes. But when we believe something, we believe it so passionately, right? Like whatever we believe in, in terms of religion or anything like that, it becomes this deep thing within our soul and it becomes part of our identity. And that's why when we identify as something as a human being, you know, we get very protective of our identity. We're not generally open to that not being true. And I learned that that is not the right way to, to live, in my opinion. It's to be open to always being wrong. You know, there's a saying, I believe it's Hindu saying that they who know, who know not, and they who know not know. So the idea that when you don't know, you actually get it because there is no, you know, idea that everything has to be a certain way. When you're open to changing the way you see the world, you know, then you're actually free. You're actually open to the possibility that the world might work differently or love might work differently, or there might, we might have a flaw. We might have room for improvement. And I was very much terrified of personal growth before I needed it, you know, before that inevitable rock bottom of a relationship ending. And I started to see that other people were craving this understanding of like, why is it so hard to leave a relationship that hurts and that doesn't make sense? And why is it so easy to stay in one that doesn't really fulfill us? And why do we leave them when they don't fulfill us? And instead of, is there an opportunity to create fulfillment within that relationship? I mean, that's such an important thing to ask, you know, because often you hear people leave too soon. And although in some sense, that's probably true that people do leave too soon because we have the power of choice, you know, before 1969 in the States and 1967 in Canada, divorce wasn't, it had to be approved by courts. It had to be approved by politicians. And that was the birth of the Divorce Act. And in the States, I believe they call it no fault divorce. And I'm not really sure about the European or Australian or any of those versions of that. But what happened then is there was a rapid influx of 
divorce because now people didn't have to have fault. There didn't have to be abuse, infidelity, cheating, stealing, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you had to have a reason. And then in 1967, 69, you didn't have to have a reason anymore. So divorces happened. You know, you had relationships that are based, were based on, you know, patriarchal sort of settings. And you had the perfect storm in essence. I mean, we had the feminist revolution at the exact same time you know, which is still ongoing. We also had the sexual revolution. So you sort of have like this perfect storm of, of sexed up, um, you know, some angry and um, rebellion against the system. And so it wasn't until about, I think in Canada, it was 1986 that they made it that you didn't have to be separated for three years, that you could actually go to one year. And then there was another influx because people were like, well, I can do one year separation. Three years was a lot before it could get legally approved as a divorce. So from there, from that understanding of why is it that we choose something that is 50% failure rate, you know, if we were to ask someone to choose an investment with that failure rate, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do it. Eric Fromm has a really beautiful book he calls The Art of Loving. And in it, he talks about how there isn't anything else at which humans fail at so so much as love, and yet they don't do anything to figure out how to do it better, you know, generally. And I find that so interesting that there's something about relationships and love that we are born and we think that we're just good at it. You know, what's so fascinating, though, is the more you research it and understand it, you begin to see that everything that we're taught about relationship generally comes from our family system, from our family. It doesn't come from you know, school, although it comes from how we interact with our classmates and our coaches and our mentors, our teachers, they're obviously an influence too. Our grandparents are a big influence. And so when we start to see it, we'll often see that our own relationship choices are, and the way we respond in conflict will be very similar to our parents. And, you know, I wasn't going to get into the dynamics of, of relationship choice, but hey, shit, I, it's my podcast. I can do whatever fuck I want. So I'm just going to. So usually in a relationship, we take one of two rules. You know, we either take the pursuer or the runner in attachment theory that would be called anxious or avoidance. So avoidant would be the runner, anxious would be the pursuer. And so attachment, just to give you like a quick idea of what it is, it's how we attach to our primary caregiver. So the research is, I believe from Bowlby, I think that's the name of the researcher. Um, I could look it up. I'll drop a reference in the show notes. But in it, what they did was they observed mothers and toddlers interact. Mom would leave the room. Mom would come back while the toddler was playing, and they'd see how the toddler responded to mom being gone and coming back. And so the first one, mom would leave. Mom would come back. When the mom came back, baby would be crying, terrified, go to mom, and wouldn't leave mom. So the idea, like, when mom leaves, mom doesn't come back is the underlying fear. The baby's, you know, obviously in a high-stress situation and really fearful. And then the second one is mom leaves, mom comes back, baby reunites with mom and then goes back to playing, you know, trusts mom. So that would be called secure attachment. And the third type is mom leaves, mom comes back, baby's like, I didn't even notice you were gone. No big deal. Oh, you're back. Cool. You know, acts very nonchalant. But physiologically, that baby is responding very similarly to the anxious child. So, you know, inside high heart rate. I was going to say sweat, but I'm not actually even sure baby sweat. But anyways, so you have these three different attachment styles. And what is shown in the research is that how we attach in our early childhood is related to how we attach as an adult. And 
that is changeable. So, you know, you can learn how to create secure attachments. Ultimately, the underlying definition of like, what is a secure attachment? It would be that our partner's needs matter as much as our own. Um, so there's a prioritization of our partner's needs. Um, the book Attached is a great book to review this, to understand your own attachment type. You can do a test online. So in that, we can actually go from anxious avoidant because, you know, so in the role of relationship, to give you a little more idea of how that shows up in an adult relationship, is an anxious person or a pursuer will often mostly be choosing partners who are really unavailable, who are, they're, you know, just out of a relationship. They're not emotionally available. They might be in another relationship. They might just want to date or just hook up or whatever. But the pursuer is constantly chasing that. And the runner is the other side of that, right? So they'd be considered avoidant. So intimacy scares them. They're, you know, people want too much. There's too many feelings, da, 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 da. We all know that, right? When someone gets anxious, texts too much, all those things, avoidance get really triggered by that. A secure person might be able to just express, hey, you know what? Like, I notice you're really reaching out to me. I, I feel your anxiety and I, I don't want you to have that. What can I, you know, help share with you so that that calms that? Like, that's a very secure response to that. And an anxious person also expressing that they have anxiety. Avoidance generally has two types. So in the research, they call it dismissive, which is that more high confidence based ones. When people need me, they get needy and they text me too much. And people in relationships always want more than I want. Da, 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 da. And so that comes from a more high self-worth sort of feeling and they tend to be more prone to narcissistic behavior. This is based on the research and tend to be more likely to have one night stands, casual encounters, that kind of stuff. Um, so the other type of avoidant detachment is called fearful. And so fearful avoidance actually believe in the benefit of a great relationship. They want one, but it's, you know, they're usually people who have suffered a trauma. So sexual abuse, emotional abuse, uh, physical abuse, those types of things. And so the mind, the subconscious goes to you, when I let people love me or I love people, they hurt me. And so there can be this deep desire for connection and attachment, but we don't do it because we're so terrified. The underlying result will be pain, abandonment, hurt, rejection, trauma, sexual, whatever, physical, emotional. And when you look at, so the two attachment styles, so anxious or avoidant, you can see that the underlying way they attach is insecure. So it's very easy for someone to go between anxious and avoidant too. So they can go from like really liking someone, really liking someone. Then that person's like, I like you back. And they're like, no, oh God, get me out of here. Right. So we can all also experience shifts between the three, depending on how a partner is behaving with us. And I just want you to understand that it's all changeable. We can all learn the skills to create secure attachments. It often involves really stepping towards fear, you know, vulnerability and fear. And the anxious attachment style too, what's really fascinating about that one is we tend to be the chaser and secure people can teach us how to become secure if we're anxious, you know, by having secure behavior, we can learn it. And so the attachment system is really like a big radar. It's always sensing for safety and security and relationships, not just romantic, it's friendships and parental relationships to family relationships. So when we're actually looking at our attachment style, really important, again, to honor that you can change it, really be honest with ourselves. Like when you're doing the attachment quiz, like, you know, don't give the, uh, the answer you, th you think they want, give the one that's actually fucking true. Because if we don't actually take an accurate audit of our lives, we can't change it. So that's a really important part.
how do we get this attachment style, right? Like we get it as an early child and then, you know, we look at our relationship patterns. And what's usually interesting is you can look at a parental system and you'll see that one parent is usually more over the top, controlling more all over it. And, the, and maybe smothering or what do they say in this millennial culture that, you know, a, a helicopter parent, like a chopper parent, you know, one of my friends, they call him a chopper because he's always hovering over the children. So they have, um, they're more over it, right? Like controlling all those types of things. The other one is more unavailable. So it could be someone working, could be an alcoholic, could be someone who never says, I love you, you know, all of these different things. They just tend to be more unavailable. And so you'll usually see parents have each one of those roles. And really what's fascinating too is that when we observe the parental role, we'll generally pick partners who wound us the same way as the parent we share the greatest wound with. So stick with me here. So we always have wounds from childhood. Emotional wounds are defined as any need that doesn't get adequately met. Well, look, how can we actually meet all of a child's needs, right? Like children can't really even use language up until a certain point. So there are going to, everyone has emotional traumas as a child, emotional wounds. And you think of it like when you're around a stove and you burn your hand, you know, you forever change your behavior around the stove, you hope, right? And it's the same thing with love. So if you burn your heart around certain situations with love, we'll forever change our behavior around love. So very similar to a physical wound, an emotional wound does teach us to change our behavior, but we're not conscious of it. You can have a burn on your hand that's very tangible, but a burn on your heart is not a physical sign, right? Like you can't see it. And in our culture, when we can't see wounds, we don't tend to honor them. You know, we're like, well, and we, and it's in our subconscious too, you know, like 95%, you know, it's 90 to 95 based on the research of what we do is subconscious. And 70% of the beliefs we hold in our subconscious are negative. So, you know, from the ages of zero to seven, zero to eight, we're learning how to be children, how to function in a family, how to be part of a culture, part of a religion, part of a society. And all of the message we're sent about like, what is a boy's rule? What's a girl's rule? As I mentioned earlier, these are all so important because we need to begin to honor these experiences and see how they actually shaped us. So when we begin to look at like, how did our parents communicate? All those sorts of things. So I wanted to get back to how do we identify which parent? Well, all you have to look at which parent we share the greatest wound with, all we have to look at is what are the partners we tend to choose? What are they like? Are they more unavailable, more all over us? Are we more anxious or avoidant? And doing the quiz is a great way to check that out. I'll put a link for that. Um, and, you know, reading the book attached, great book to actually get just sort of a summary of it. And then it's beginning to honor what that is and seeing that, you know, for the most part, the partners we choose wound us, right? Very similarly to how our parent did that we share the greatest wound with. And we've all know that line where it's like, you marry your dad or you marry your mom. And it's usually said about an opposite sex parent, but that's not true, right? Like you marry, it's not the opposite. It's the wounding that's the most important in determining that. And it's not to blame them because our parents are human. And as I was saying before, we inherit because of the observation of how our parents interact you have to remember that there's no intervention outside of that other than, you know, very few people get relationship education outside of their family. And so you have to remember that your parents learn from their parents. And all you have to do is go up five generations, assuming that 
all the parents stayed together in marriages, you have around 30 people that their emotional stuff funnels down to you. And your partner has, you know, 30 people, you know, again, assuming nuclear families that funnel down to them. And so really relationships are about our stuff and their stuff. And then how those two things interact, as my good friend Alexandra Salman says, you know, really understanding how does our stuff play together? Because the wound that you have that causes you to choose your partner, your partner has a wound that causes them to choose you. That's why you will see anxious and avoidant people tend to be together or anxious and secure people. And, and avoidant people tend to shy away from a relationship more. So I, you know, I'm not going to, I don't have any research to say they tend to be more single or in shorter, not as long-term monogamous relationships, but you know, that'd be a, a fair assumption. And, you know, in the book attached, there's a lot of talk about, you know, like the healing for an anxious person is to learn from a secure person, but the healing for an avoidant person is actually learn to step towards love a little more, to open up a little more. And for the anxious person to take a step back to allow people to step towards them, but there's so much fear that they want to smother and control. So anyways, this is all such interesting stuff, right? You know, it's so fascinating to learn how we love people and why we love them. And, you know, to be able to see that it is often the wound that we choose partners through. And that's why we can be super interested in people who are bad for us. You know, I hear all the time, you know, why do I attract assholes? I want a great relationship. And I'm like, no, you don't. You know, like, because consciously we say, I want a great relationship, but what's actually happening is we're not choosing one. And so the separation there is that's the power of the subconscious mind. The wound wants to re-wound us the same way so we can learn how to heal it. So that's why we choose partners who are like our, you know, parent uh, who wounded us the most. The subconscious mind almost sort of, you know, in Harville Hendrick's work, in the Hendrick's work, they have a great book called Getting the Love You Want, where, you know, they talk about how the subconscious mind actually mistakes the partner for the parent in a way. That's what creates the love chemistry, the connection. And that's why we can be chemically attracted to, that's what we perceive it as, right? Like, but I can't help it. I'm just attracted to these unavailable people who are assholes who do this, this, and this, but it's the wound that's attracted to them. And so that's where we need to begin to distinguish between what creates our butterflies because often unavailability creates butterflies. And in Esther Perel's work, you know, she talks about how desire actually requires separation and mystery and all of those things. And love requires closeness and safety. And, and so there, you know, this idea that desire and love are always at odds. And I would argue that once you understand how your wound chooses your partner, then you can start to create desire within a safe relationship. This is why when we pick someone who's, you know, an asshole, there's always elation and uncertainty. And if we come from a high conflict home, we'll often seek to create conflict within our relationships. When things are seemingly going well, we might start fights over nothing. And when we have conversations, you know, if our home was high conflict, our nervous system is used to always being heightened. So when someone's ready to choose us and to love us, you can see that the underlying belief is really, I don't deserve it because, or I'm not worthy of being loved. And so the belief that most people come out of childhood with is, I'm not worthy of being chosen. I'm not worthy of being loved. And, you know, we all share really common fears, fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of not being enough. And when those get triggered, those are the moments that we really go to old childhood patterns that 
we tend to withdraw or attack or get defensive or critical or anything like that. So really being able to look at how we wound our wounding patterns, the relationship partners we choose. I know I cover a lot of information and being able to also take responsibility for if your unconscious or subconscious mind is choosing unavailable people, people who are hard, you know, who treat you poorly, all those things, it's beginning to look at the underlying belief that creates that. So I think it's John Green who has the quote, and we choose the love that we think we believe we deserve. And that's true is like, you can't believe you're worthy of love and have friends, family, and romantic partners that don't make you feel that way right? Like the moment that, you know, it's almost like your belief about yourself is as true as the poorest, the poorest treatment you have in your life. So if everybody but one treats you, you know, one person treats you poorly in your life, you can't hold the belief that you're worthy of more because that person will be at conflict with that belief. You can't actually hold that, that paradoxical experience of I love me and I accept this behavior. And that's why it can feel so challenging. And that's why we can lose friends over it because it's not rational, right? It's, it's subconscious. And that's why it seems like we're doing crazy shit, you know, when we're picking these partners that don't treat us well, or we're afraid to communicate about emotions or anything like this. It's really these, this like underlying belief that has us choosing these things. And so what happens is we spend our life proving this story, this belief about ourselves that no one chooses me, no one loves me, I'm not worthy of, everyone rejects me, everyone abandons me. We spend our life proving that story instead of, and that's the wound, right? Instead of thinking someone's going to save me, someone's going to love me, someone's going to change the story, we have to change the story. And often we wake up in relationships being aware of this. And, you know, that's a very challenging situation to wake up in a relationship and see we want more. Where? Why did we get here? Why are we settling? You know, all of these are things that I want to explore and talk about. I can't give away the farm, right? I want to explore and talk about these things with other guests and people. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to have a lot of fucking fun. I'm going to guess that every single episode is probably going to have the E on it for explicit because sometimes the F word just flies out. Sometimes I say shit. Sometimes I say asshole. You know, sometimes I, I don't usually say bitch, which is interesting that I'm okay with referencing a male as an asshole or a female, but I don't want to use the word bitch because it seems derogatory. So yeah, we have some things to explore in my own mind of why that's true to not be as kind to men, but to respect and only be, hold that term for women. That's interesting. We're going to get to that. I promise. Um, but I really want your interaction. I want you to be able to post questions and we can get to those types of things. Really, this is an exploration. And I want you to understand that in the creation of this podcast, like any dream, any idea, we fear how it's going to look. I was afraid of how do you upload these on the internet? How do you, you know, I had all these things that have held me back from launching this for three years. So I'm here. And I have no idea in recording this how it's going to get uploaded or what that looks like. But man, since I made the intention and I've had so many of my followers on Instagram and Facebook ask when I'm coming out with a podcast, because I've done so many other people's podcasts, that I, since I've set the intention, I've learned a lot and people keep popping in my life who are doing these things, who are starting their own, who have the resources and the reference, you know, referring me to other people to help out. So when we set an intention to actually move towards it, which is, I don't know what this is looks like, but I need to record it. I need to get episode one done. Like step one is get the fucking podcast episode one done. So I'm doing it. You're in the live creation. 
Second step is I don't know. It's going to show up. It's going to be contact someone who knows about podcasts, get it uploaded on a blah, 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 blah. So I want you to understand that whenever you have a fear of something that's unknown, if you're stepping towards the edge of your creativity, it's like always move towards that thing. And you, you know, as Kyle Cease, my friend says, we always think of all the things that can go wrong or what it's going to have to look like at the end and what happens if it doesn't work and what happens if no one likes it and what, you know, if no one likes this podcast, which come on, fuck, this podcast can, it's already awesome. But if no one likes it, then what? What's the worst case, really worst case scenario? Come on. So this will just die in the audio bin with probably thousands of other podcasts, let's be honest. We always think of all the things that we're going to lose, but we don't think of all the things that can come from it. We don't think of all the possibility of all the people we may meet, of all the people we may help, of all the conversations we're going to have. And so we don't think about all of the things we can create because they're not real yet. But if you have a calling towards anything, which I have a calling towards creating this podcast, you have to get started. And however it comes out is perfect. If you have, you know, you just have to begin. And then step two shows up and then you can do step two. And even if you think you have to restart, that's actually step three because you figured out that the first thing didn't work. So, so much love to you guys. I just spoke for 35 minutes and wow, I can't wait to get someone on here. I'm guessing the episodes are going to be around an hour, but I'm not going to commit to a certain time because we could be having the best fucking conversation. And look at Joe Rogan. He has three hour podcasts. So I look forward to entertaining you in your car, in your headphones, when you're working out, whatever that is. Maybe I'll try to get a deeper, sexier voice for that. And, you know, I'll probably do some videos with these two. Anyways, lots of love to you guys. If you have any suggestions for episode topics or anything like that, please email me at connect at Mark Groves, M-A-R-K-G-R-O-V-E-S. You better know how to spell my fucking name since it's the podcast. MarkGroves.tv. Connect at MarkGroves.tv like television. Fire me an email. Let me know your thoughts. Can't wait to hear from you. Lots of love.